Father, as we come to your word today, we believe your promise spoken in the New Testament that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So we trust that we're hearing your words today, Father. And we hear Paul say in that passage that your word, all of it, is useful for teaching and correction, uh, reproof, training in righteousness, and we need all of those things today from the seventh commandment. And Father, we hear your son, after his resurrection, walking on the road to Emmaus and taking those two men um, with whom he walked back all the way into the books of Moses and into the Old Testament prophets and showing them that these Old Testament pages point us forward to you. God, the the one verse that we're going to consider today mostly points us forward for our to our need for Christ. And so we pray that you would show us again our need for him today so that we might look for him and find him and rejoice in him and trust in him and in his provision through his death on the cross and his resurrection, that we sinners, breakers of the seventh commandment, might be free from condemnation. So show us ourself, show us our sin, show us our Savior. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me to Exodus 20, and I want to read to you Exodus 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. A couple of years ago, one of our young people um, told me about a discussion that happened in one of his high school classrooms in the public schools here in Metro Cincinnati area. And what happened was his teacher posed two questions to the class. First, how many of you students think adultery is wrong? And almost all of them raised their hands and said, yes, I think adultery is wrong. And then she said, well, how many of you think lust is wrong? Only one student raised their hand. Only one student out of 20 in the classroom raised his hand and said, lust is wrong. Thankfully, it was our student. But all of the other students, many of whom I would assume go to church somewhere or maybe are in church somewhere this morning, didn't understand that lust was wrong. That kind of response, I think, is reason for alarm when we look at the seventh commandment. Even more so when we discover that as many as seven in ten American teenagers will have engaged in sexual intercourse by the time they reach the age of 19. Seven in ten. That includes all the ones that are in church all over our country this morning. Furthermore, that sexual activity leads to approximately three quarters of a million pregnancies, teen pregnancies, every year. And roughly 200,000 of those are aborted every year. It's really important on a lot of fronts that we get this commandment right. And if those statistics don't alarm you enough, try this one on for size. According to a joint study done by Yale University and Columbia University, looking at students who had completed the Southern Baptist abstinence program called True Love Waits, maybe some of you have completed that, Students, among students who completed the True Love Waits program, 88% of them had broken their premarital abstinence vows within six years of completing that program. Something's wrong. 
That's further evidence right there that program-driven ministry doesn't work, does it? You can throw all the programs you want at people, and it doesn't change their lives. The gospel does. But more to the point this morning, that's evidence that we in the church have a lot of work to do in regard to the seventh commandment, don't we? We mustn't think this morning that this is a message for people on the outside. For if 70% of American teenagers have sex before they're married, and 88% of those who complete the Southern Baptist Abstinence Program do, we're doing worse than the culture. Something's not right about that. So we need this morning to listen, and we need to listen well. And before we dive into Exodus 20, verse 14, I want to insert a parenthesis that I've already been inserting, and that is to say whenever a preacher stands up and speaks about sexual purity, there are large portions of the congregation who think that it's okay for them to turn this one off and to tune out. And some of you may think that. You may think that you're too spiritual or too old or too female or too whatever it is to really have to worry about adultery and lust. I don't want you to think that way this morning. I don't want you to tune me out. And to encourage you not to do so, I'm going to give you a few advertisements concerning the Seventh Commandment. Just a few. Number one is to say the Seventh Commandment is not simply for married people. It's not simply for married people. The, the verse does say you shall not commit adultery, and adultery normally applies to breaking our marriage vows by sexual sin. But I think you can see from the illustrations that I've already given that we're not going to just linger around breaking of our marriage vows by sexual sin, but sexual sin in general, which is covered by this commandment. So this commandment has to do with people who aren't husbands and who aren't wives. It touches every area of sexual Morality. So single people, don't tune me out. And young people, don't tune me out. This message applies to you whether you've taken wedding vows or not. Second advertisement. The seventh commandment is not simply for young people. Some of you may think that you're too old to be tempted sexually. And maybe you are. I don't know. I haven't reached that age yet. But I want you to consider something. If you think that I'm beyond this, and, and, and I hope that there's an age where you get beyond these temptations. I really do. But if you're at that age, I want you to consider the possibility that the tawdry sex lives of American young people have a lot to do with American old people who didn't train their children and their grandchildren the way they should have. Think about that. Maybe the reason kids these days are so much worse or seem so much worse than previous generations is because they had worse parents and worse grandparents and worse church role models. So even if you're not a parent or a grandparent, you're going to see in a few moments that there's something here for you. Don't tune out if you're an older person this morning. Instead, let this message be a springboard to help you obey and apply Titus 2, 4, and 5, where Paul urges older women, and I think it applies on the other side of the gender line as well, but Paul urges older women to, quote, encourage the young women to love their husbands to love their children, to be sensible and pure. If young women in our churches aren't pure, part of the blame lies with older women. And if young men in our churches aren't pure, part of the blame lies with older men. So older people, hear me this morning and let this be a springboard for you to be an encouragement and a help to the younger generations. Third advertisement. The seventh commandment is not simply for males. Now, Experience and statistics and biblical emphasis 
all revealed that sexual sin seems, anyway, in general, more of a temptation for males than it is for females. Not in every individual case, but, but by and large, I think that most of us would agree that that's true. However, women are not immune to this commandment. Women are not immune to sexual sin. And that makes common sense, doesn't it? Because in most cases of sexual sin, there is a male and a female involved, isn't there? So women, don't tune me out. This commandment has a lot to say to you today as well, and especially as we get to the practical applications toward the end. And then the last advertisement is to say that the seventh commandment is not simply for weak people. It's not simply for people who are weak spiritually. Some of you may be tempted to tune out this morning because you feel like you've got yourself pretty well under control as it relates to sexual morality. And I hope some of you do. But if you are there, all I want to say to you is to quote 1 Corinthians 10:12, where Paul says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. So, whoever you are this morning, I hope you won't tune out. I think there's something here for all of us. Now, Exodus 20:14 again reads, You shall not commit adultery. And as we said, the word adultery refers specifically to a married person's breaking of his or her wedding vows by engaging in sex outside of that marriage bond. So the letter of the commandment is something like this. Don't sleep around on your husband. Don't sleep around on your wife. But I want you to remember what we said the last time we looked at the Ten Commandments, particularly with the Sixth Commandment. What did we say about merely obeying the letter of the law? Well, we observe with the Sixth Commandment, you shall not murder, that it's not good enough simply to obey the letter of the law. In other words, the commandment, you shall not murder, does not mean that we're allowed to beat a person within an inch of his life so long as we don't kill him. That's the letter of the law, but the spirit of the Sixth Commandment is also that we love one another and that we refrain from all sins that are destructive to personhood, not just outright murder. And it's the same thing with the seventh commandment. The same common sense applies. The letter of the commandment is you shall not commit adultery. Don't break your marriage vows by having sex outside of marriage. But does that mean that it's okay to engage in any sexual sin we like so long as we do it before we get married? Of course not. So the letter of the command is don't commit adultery, but the spirit of the command deals not only with adultery proper, but with every kind of sexual immorality. And I want to consider five kinds this morning just to get you thinking about the spirit of the seventh commandment. How might we break this commandment? Well, number one, very obviously by adultery. Sex outside the marriage bond, which breaks the seventh commandment and breaks the marriage bond in some ways. We've already talked about this, so let me just urge you, do not let this happen. Don't even allow yourself to be in the same room or in the same car by yourself with someone of the opposite sex. If you don't do that, then you can't commit adultery, can you? You've got to be careful. And you need to cultivate a healthy intimacy in your own marriage so that you won't be tempted to go outside for emotional or physical release. We're going to come back to that idea in a moment. But let me just read to you 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5. This to help you think about a healthy intimacy in your marriage that will prevent adultery. Paul says the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife 
And likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body. The wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So number one, most clearly do whatever it takes in God's strength to avoid putting yourself in the position to break your marriage vows. How else might we break the spirit of the seventh command? Number two, fornication. Fornication, premarital sex, if you will. Fornication doesn't violate the letter of the seventh commandment, but it leaves dirty fingerprints all over the spirit of it. I don't care what the culture thinks is normal. I don't care how much you think you love someone. Sex before marriage is wrong. And if you need direct proof of that, you have it in Hebrews 13:4, where the author of Hebrews says, Marriage is to be held in honor by all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Do you hear that? Fornication is a violation of the marriage bed, he says. It's a sin against your own future spouse and a sin against the future spouse of the person with whom you fornicate. Furthermore, says Paul, it warrants the judgment of God. Fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Many of you can testify that premarital sex leads to devastation and heartache. It's unimaginable going into it. It never seems like it would be as bad as it really is, but it is. If you're a young person who's struggling with that temptation, you need to ask an older Christian who's been there and just ask them, was it worth it? Was fornication worth it? And listen real close to what they tell you, and you will be helped. Thirdly, we break the spirit of the seventh commandment by engaging in homosexuality. Now, homosexuality would be covered under the umbrella of the prohibition against fornication and would hardly need mentioning if it weren't for the prevailing culture in which we live. Some of you heard at the end of the month of August, yet another state, the state of Iowa, began a legal process that could pave the way for homosexual marriage to be legalized in that state. So it needs to be said again. No matter how legal it may become, no matter how committed, quote, committed, a gay couple may be to one another, the Bible teaches that homosexuality is a sin, just like adultery and just like fornication. And we need to be able, in love and in compassion, to demonstrate that truth to our unbelieving friends. They need to understand what God says. And you can demonstrate it to them both from the Old and the New Testaments. Leviticus 18.22 You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Romans 1, 26 and 27. Women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also men abandon the natural function of the woman and burn in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. Old Testament, New Testament, males, females, God says, this is not my intention for you. It's not good for you and it's an abomination towards me, he says. Fourthly, the seventh commandment is broken, according to Jesus, by divorce and remarriage. 
We don't have time to go into this in great detail. We've done so in the past. But let me just point you to Matthew 5.32 where Jesus says this. Everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. As I said, those are complex verses. If you want to, to dig into them deeper and find out what, what all is there, there are some tapes on the table in the foyer from Mark chapter 9 and 10 where the parallel passage exists in the book of Mark. And I, I hope those tapes will fully untangle what Jesus is saying here. But let it suffice for now to say this. In general, we can conclude that divorce itself is a violation of the seventh commandment. The spirit of the seventh commandment is... Husbands and wives ought to love one another and be faithful to one another. Divorce breaks that. Remarriage after divorce, Jesus also says, breaks that covenant. So we need to cultivate healthy marriages so that divorce will never even be a discussion or an option. Fifthly, the spirit of the seventh commandment is broken by lust. And this is why I began where I began this morning. Because I believe that where most of you sit right now, though some of you may be tempted in uh, physical adultery or fornication or homosexuality or divorce, some of you may be tempted in those areas, but a great many more of you who aren't tempted to actually live those things out are tempted to lust. And we're going to spend the most of the rest of our time on that. Now let's first ask, what is lust? What is lust? Webster describes it like this. Having inordinate carnal desires. Having inordinate carnal desires. So then, specifically, sexual lust would be having inordinate carnal sexual desires towards another person. Men, have you had any inordinate carnal desires towards another person lately? Women, have you had any inordinate carnal desires towards another person? If you have, then that is lust. Now, how can you tell if your desires are carnal and inordinate? How can you tell if you've crossed over the boundary into lust? I think the best test verse is 1 Timothy 5, 2, where Paul instructs Timothy to treat the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters with all purity. Treat the older women, he says, as mothers. Treat the younger women as sisters. In all purity. So how can you tell if you've crossed over the line between simply appreciating a woman's beauty and lusting? Well, you ask yourself the question, would I think about my sister the way I just thought about that woman? Would I think about my sister that way? And would I want someone else thinking about my sister like that? If the answer to those questions is no, then you're not treating the woman, the younger woman as a sister. And you are crossing over the boundary into lust. We've got to learn to ask ourselves that question, men, and and ladies as well, coming the other direction. But I think especially men. Paul gave this command to a man. Am I looking at that woman, that girl, the same way that I would look at my sister? If no, then I've crossed over into lust. Now, with that as a backdrop, I want you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus gives his own... uh, miniature sermon on the seventh commandment and we're going to spend the most of the rest of our time in Matthew chapter 5 and I want to read to you verses 27 through 30. Jesus' commentary on the seventh commandment. 
You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So, were the high school students correct? 19 of them. Is it okay to look so long as we don't touch? Is that the sexual ethic of the Bible? Look but don't touch. Clearly not according to Jesus in these verses. If anyone looks at a woman to lust after her, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. So having read those verses, I want to just remind you in very brief fashion of three things we said about them when we studied these verses together back in March of 05. Three things briefly that we can learn from Matthew 25 or Matthew 5:27 through 30 about lust. First, the battle for sexual purity is won in the heart, not mainly in the members of the body. The battle for sexual purity in your own life, in your children's lives, in your grandchildren's lives is won mainly, first of all, in the heart, not in the members of the body. That is, all sexual sin, whether it's adultery or fornication or homosexuality or masturbation or whatever it is, begins with evil desires in your heart. Jesus says it right here. If you lose the battle in your heart, you're already guilty. So that means, men, when you undress a woman with your eyes, when you give in to pornography, or what's not called pornography, but what really is, when your head swivels when you walk past the magazine rack at UDF, your heart, Jesus says, is just perverted as the man, just as perverted as the man who's sleeping with his secretary. It's the same sin. Now, does that mean that once you've thought it, you might as well go ahead and do it? No, obviously not. Then you're adding sin to sin. But it does mean that lust is just as bad, just as punishable as adultery. And it means that if you're going to fight against it, you're going to have to fight against it every single day, not just when you're in the heat of the moment. The battle starts in your heart. And it moves next to your eyes. And we'll come back to that in a few moments. So number one, the battle... For sexual purity is won or lost in the heart, not mainly in the members of the body. Number two, sexual sin is deadly serious, according to these verses. What's the alternative, according to Jesus, to fighting against sexual sin? What happens if you decide not to fight? Well, he says, you'll be thrown into hell. You can either fight, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, and go to heaven, or you cannot fight and be thrown into hell. That's how serious it is. Now, Has God made us with sexual desires? Yes. But has God also given us a wholesome, healthy, happy way to fulfill those desires? Yes. Therefore, anytime we seek to fulfill those desires, either mentally or physically, outside of the plan that God has given us, what we're basically saying is, God, you've been stingy with me. You haven't given me everything that I need to be happy. And that kind of attitude towards the Lord is worthy, Jesus says, of death. So that's number two. Sexual sin is deadly serious. Thirdly, to avoid sexual sin and the consequences of it, the believer fights like a madman. 
against it. To avoid the consequences of sexual sin, the believer fights like a madman against it. Listen to verses 29 and 30 again carefully. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Those are savage words, aren't they? I mean, these are the kind of words that people read and they go, I don't know if I like this Jesus, but this is what he says. Savage words. I don't think he means that we take them literally, that we literally cut off our hand and gouge out our eye because you can still lust with no hands and no eyes, can't you? Because lust starts in the heart. I think the point of what he's saying is, he's speaking metaphorically to say, you ought to be dead serious about this. You ought to be dead serious about combating sexual sin in your life and in your heart. So serious that you could be said to make war on your sexual desires, your inordinate sexual desires. John Piper says this, commenting on Romans 8 about fighting sin in general, but I think it especially applies to sexual sin. There is a mean streak in Christianity. There is a violence, a militancy, but it is exactly opposite of selfish violence against people. It is a violence against the flesh or against the deeds of the body, our flesh and our body. This is exactly what Jesus is saying. We have to war against ourselves if we're going to defeat this sin. We take whatever measures are necessary with the power, in the power of the Holy Spirit against ourselves to make sure that we gouge out the eyes and cut off the hands of lust. So it's better to be a prude or thought of as a prude and go to heaven than it is to be a normal American and go to hell. That's how I'd paraphrase what Jesus is saying. Normal Americans let their eyes see what they like and their hands touch what they like and their minds think what they like and their hearts feel what they like, don't they? Christians don't do that. Not just in this area, but in other areas as well. It's better to be thought a prude and go to heaven than to be a normal American and go to hell. Most normal Americans are on their way to destruction. So, are you in the power of the Holy Spirit, making war against your sexual lust? Are you taking extreme measures? So extreme that your neighbors, your co-workers might call you prudish to make sure that your lustful eyes and your perverted hands are cut off and you don't end up in a fiery grave. If you're not, you should be. And if you are, you could probably be fighting better and more fiercely and with better strategy than you currently are. That's where most of us are, I think. Most of us are fighting this a little bit, but we could be fighting more. We could be fighting more biblically. We could be fighting with better strategy. And so I want to just finish by giving you nine ways that I'm going to unashamedly repeat verbatim from when we preached uh, from Matthew chapter 5 two years ago. Nine ways to fight fiercely and wisely against sexual lust. And I hope this will be helpful to you. I hope it will be helpful to you as you train your children, your grandchildren, and other younger people in the church. How do you cut off your hand? Number one, look to the cross and remember that in Christ you have the strength to fight. This is most important. Look to the cross always and remember that it's in Christ that you have the strength to fight. Because if you fight in your own strength, you'll fail. You've already seen that, haven't you? 
The reason why we fail is because we're in our own strength. But if your strength comes from Christ, you cannot help but succeed. Listen to what Paul says on this issue. Romans 8, 1 through 4. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. And here's the key. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What's he saying? He's saying this. Jesus died, first of all, to purchase your pardon for sin. That's great, and that's what we normally think of when we think of Christ's death. We are pardoned forever because of Jesus' purchase by his blood of our lives. But Jesus also died, verses 3 and 4, to purchase for us the power to overcome sin. He says, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, our own strength, but according to the Spirit, according to the strength of Christ. So in Christ, we are free from our slavery to sin. We don't have to sin if we belong to Him. If you find yourself saying to yourself, I have to sin, I have to sin, I can't overcome this, then either you don't belong to Christ or you've ceased looking to Christ because if you're in Christ and you're looking to Christ, He will give you the strength that you need. So enter the battle, not with fresh resolves this morning of willpower, but with a trembling dependence upon Jesus. That's number one. How do you cut off your hand? Number two, make a covenant with your eyes. Job 1.1, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and he was blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. How did he do that? How did Job fear God and turn away from evil so much that he could be called blameless and upright? Well, listen to one of the ways he did it, Job 31.1. This is Job speaking. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Job was old. Job had ten kids, and they were grown. Job was old, and he was still tempted by sexual sin. Job had sores all over his body, and he was still tempted. So don't think that you're beyond temptation. But how did he do it? He said, I made a contract, a covenant, a promise with my eyes that I would not look at things that would tempt me. I would not gaze at a virgin. Are you gazing men, women, at people, things that you ought not to gaze at? Looking for longer than you ought to look? Not just noticing in passing, but following? You need to make a covenant with your eyes. You need to prevent yourself from being in places where you see things that you ought not see. You need to be ruthless about it, even if people call you a prude. Josh Harris in his book, Not Even a Hint, not even a hint of Sexual Lust is the, or Sexual Sin is the Idea, suggest several areas where we're commonly tempted. I want to just give them to you, and you let them land on you where they may. Late nights with members of the opposite sex. Particular locations where our eyes see what they should not see. Television programs and commercials. Magazine and Internet ads. Not Internet pornography sites, just the ads in the sidebar on the Internet. Movie rental stores. Romance novels. Sensual music. Racy mail order catalogs. 
All these are areas, he says about himself, this is a pastor in Maryland, these are areas where if I go to these places, if I pick up these things, if I walk down these aisles, I'm going to be tempted. So I've made a contract with myself that I won't go those places. People say, you're crazy, you don't go to Blockbuster? No, I don't go to Blockbuster. I don't want to walk through and see seven out of ten videos that I can't even look at the cover, much less rent them. All of these are areas of temptation where we need to make a contract not to take our eyes. Like Job, we need to make a covenant with our eyes. In the strength of the Spirit, we need to make a covenant with our eyes. Thirdly, how do we cut off our hands? Make a covenant with a brother or sister in Christ. In other words, find someone of the same gender who will intentionally ask you the hard questions. Someone who will say to you, for instance, Court, what websites have you been to in the last week? Have your eyes been wandering in the last week? Have you gone those places where you need not go in the last week? What are you doing to fight against lust in the last week? You need someone that will ask you those kinds of questions if you're struggling, even if you're not. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You need one another. You need another person of the same gender as you who will ask you the hard questions. If you want to be healed, James gives you the prescription. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Fourthly, how do you cut off the hand of lust? Do not commit pornography. Do not commit pornography. That's an odd statement. Normally think about looking at pornography or giving ourselves to pornography, not committing pornography. So what, am I, what do I mean, do not commit pornography? Listen to Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary. Men are tempted to give themselves to pornography. Women are tempted to commit pornography. And what he doesn't mean is women are tempted to pose naked for magazine pictures. That's obviously included, but that's not mainly what he's talking about. Most of you, none of you have probably ever been tempted to do that. What he's saying is women... The way that you clothe yourselves and the way that you carry your body can contribute to the spiritual ruin of men and boys all around you, just like pornography and even worse. So let me just say from a man who has sexual desires like every other man, ladies, tight sweaters, too short uh, shorts or skirts, low-cut blouses, hip-hugging jeans, halter tops, bikinis, spandex, workout clothes, all of those things are a thousand times more difficult for me and every other man in this room probably to get out of our minds than any internet pornography will ever be. You hear that? Women whom we see every day at church, in the workplace, and in school who dress provocatively are a thousand times more difficult to overcome than internet pornography will ever be. I'm not tempted to go on the internet and look at pornography. But I can't help walking down the aisle at Biggs or walking down the street and seeing women everywhere who don't have enough clothes on or whose clothes are too tight or too revealing. So as a man and as your pastor, I plead with you, ladies, don't commit pornography. Don't let yourself be a walking distraction, a walking temptation. And if you need help thinking about it, here is a little insert that was in the bulletin today that I think will help you. I've read it. Everything in there, I say, is very helpful from these four ladies about how to make yourself modest. Fifthly, how do you cut off the hand of lust? 
Some of you are going to love this one. Kiss Dating Goodbye. Borrowed this from Josh Harris's book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. I've talked about this numerous times before, and I'll say it again this morning. I don't have time to say all that I might say, so you should get the book, or you should get the book Boy Meets Girl, which is on the foyer table, uh, which is kind of the sequel, and talks about how this man met his wife and got married without ever dating her. It's wonderful. It's great. Parents, go get it for your kids. But let me say this about dating. Nowhere, nowhere in the Bible do we find this heart-wrenching, sexually tempting, thoroughly American practice ever described, much less promoted. Never, not once in the Bible. Now, does that in and of itself condemn the practice of dating? I don't think so by itself. However, remember Paul's instructions to Timothy. Treat the younger women as sisters. It would be very hard to obey that counsel in a dating relationship, wouldn't it? I mean, I, I dated, so this is, this is me speaking from my failures, not from my successes. But, but I know that when I dated in high school and college, uh, it would have been very difficult for me to take my sister out to a romantic dinner. It had been very difficult for me to take my sister uh, onto the couch and whisper sweet nothings into her ears or to kiss her on the lips or to put my fingers in her hair or to stay up late at night with her watching movies. I just didn't do that kind of stuff with my sister. I I don't think any of you did as well. And if you're the sister, you wouldn't want your brother doing those things to you either. You get the point. Dating is one giant opportunity for lust to flow through our eyes, through our hands, through our emotions, into our hearts, and ruin us. And you don't need to raise your hand but many of you could testify that dating ruined you sexually. If you wouldn't have gone to that place with that person at that time and been alone with them, you wouldn't have done what you did those years ago. Now, better, I think, is the practice of courtship. This isn't in the Bible either, but courtship is just the idea that dates, spending time with another person you're interested in, takes place with other people in public, in your parents' house, in front of your parents' And with your friends and physical touch and romantic languages, language are limited to what you could say in front of everybody in the room without being embarrassed or calling attention to yourself. I wish I had done things this way. It would have saved a lot of temptation and heartache and sin. So, kiss dating goodbye. Number six, how do you cut off your hand? Cultivate a healthy marriage. Remember Matthew 5:31 and 32 where Jesus said that divorce is tantamount to adultery. So one reason why divorce is so heartbreaking is because it fosters future acts of adultery. Thus, a happy, healthy, committed marriage is one of God's great weapons against sexual sin, isn't it? Does that make sense? If a poor marriage leads toward adultery, then a good marriage protects from adultery, doesn't it? Cultivate a healthy marriage. Remember 1 Corinthians 7, 3-5, where Paul urges that couples not deprive one another sexually. That's important too. A healthy sex life within marriage helps you avoid adultery. So counsel to married people, work hard at promoting a healthy, happy marriage. 
Couples who are in happy marriages and who have happy sex lives are much less likely to seek satisfaction elsewhere. And if you're single, let me paraphrase Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, 9. If you're single and you're struggling with lust, just get married. Say it's not that easy. Well, it is if you don't. If you kiss, if you kiss dating goodbye, then marriage isn't nearly so difficult, is it? Just think back, those of you who are married. It wouldn't be nearly so difficult if we didn't have to play all these games. 1 Corinthians 7, 9, Paul says basically this. If you don't have self-control, if you can't prevent yourself from fornicating, then get married. It's better to get married than to burn with lust. So cultivate a healthy marriage, and if you don't have a healthy marriage, or don't have, excuse me, don't have a marriage, then cultivate a marriage, and then cultivate a healthy marriage. Seventh, how do you cut off the hand of lust? Pick up the sword of the Spirit and fight. Ephesians 6, the armor of God, all of it's defensive except for one piece, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Ephesians 6, 17. It's the only offensive weapon you have. It's the only instrument that you can use in the war against sexual lust to kill it. You can defend yourself against it, but you can't kill it unless you have the Word of God. What are you going to use to gouge out your eyes and cut off your hands? You're going to use the sword of the Spirit. Not a literal sword, literally gouging out your eyes and literally cutting off your hands, but you're going to use the sword of the Spirit to cut off the hand of lust and to gouge out the eye. If you're not reading your Bible, if you're not studying your Bible, if you're not memorizing Scripture that would help you fight against sin, then you're going to fall into all kinds of sin. And some of you are going to fall into sexual sin. You need to put the Bible in your head. You need to hide it in your heart so that you might not sin against God. So that when that racy ad pops up on the television screen, your mind immediately can say to itself, therefore, this is 2 Timothy 2, 21 and 22, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be useful to his master. Therefore, flee youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, love, and peace. You need to have verses like that in your mind. See, when I call that verse in my mind, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, namely sexual lusts, he's talking to Timothy, the young man, he'll be useful to the master. If I can call that to mind, I can say to myself, I want more to be useful to the master than I do to give in to this temptation. And... Every time that I call that verse to mind and think about it for two seconds, I win the battle. When I don't think about that verse or another passage that I can use to cut off the hand, then I often lose the battle in that moment. Passages like this liberate you. They will strengthen you to change the channel. They'll strengthen you to turn your head the other way. They'll strengthen you not to go to that place where your friend is inviting you to go, where you know that you're going to be tempted. But without Bible study... And without Bible memorization, then you have no sword in your hand. And when the enemy comes to attack you, you may beat him back for a moment with the shield of faith. But with no sword in your hand, he's eventually going to get you. How do you cut off your hand? Number eight, in all these things, cry to God for help. Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6. And one of the main requests that he taught us to pray is... Father, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We've got to pray that way. Father, I'm waking up 
to a day and to a world and to a city and to a job and to a school that are going to be filled with temptation. Do not lead me into temptation today. Protect me from it. Help me not to walk into it. Deliver me from evil. We've got to pray that way. When we wake up in the mornings, I don't do a very good job at this. When I wake up in the morning praying against temptation, whatever the temptation may be, on various different levels. But we need to pray, Lord, help me not look at my, that billboard on my way to work today. Is there a billboard on the way to work that tempts you? Pray against that billboard. Pray for God's help every day. Is there someone in your office that tempts you? Is there someone at school that tempts you? Pray every day when you wake up, God, help me not look at a woman to lust after her. Help me not look at a man to lust after him. Whatever it is, pray that the Lord would give you strength. If you're not praying, then you're not serious enough about fighting sexual sin. And if you're not praying, the words of James condemn you the way that they often do me. Where he says, James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask. Paraphrase, you do not have sexual purity because you do not ask for it. Finally, number nine, when you fall into temptation, confess your sins and repent. When you fall, when you fail, confess your sins and repent. This is a word of hope for all of you who struggle with sexual immorality, either in your present or some of you in your past. Sexual immorality is not the unforgivable sin. Any lustful person, any adulterer, any person who's struggling with masturbation, anyone who's a fornicator, anyone who has been a homosexual is free to come to God seeking forgiveness and seeking healing. 1 John 1.9 gives us a promise. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you sit here today and you don't take it to God and you try to battle it on your own, you don't have a promise of forgiveness and cleansing, do you? You've got to confess. If you want to begin to overcome this, start now by confessing it to the Lord. And there may be people that you need to confess to as well, but start by confessing it to the Lord. God wants to set you free from your slavery to lust. So much so that he sent his very own son who never was married and who never sinned sexually either in his body or in his heart or in his mind or in his hands or in his eyes. His perfect son to die in your place. Hands covered with the residue of sexual sin. John goes on to say in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, if anyone sins, he knows we're going to sin. If anyone sins... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. You don't need to be chained up any longer by sexual lust. You don't need to go to hell with two eyes and with two, or with one eye and one, two eyes and two hands. You've been given the power to be forgiven and the power to fight through Christ. And if you would come to him and confess your sins to him and believe on his sacrifice, then you would take hold of the promise that we read already. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus.